Well, we are in the second week of our series, I Can Relate, and we're looking at some things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about uh, relational patterns. Uh, we're going to be uh, moving on up toward the golden rule in a couple weeks, and so that's going to be amazing. But a lot of what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount has to do with the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I've come to announce the kingdom of God. The power and the presence of God is now available for each of us. And he kind of related the kingdom of God uh, up and against the kingdom of this earth and and the kingdom of you because you have a kingdom. You have a sphere of influence. You have a a dominion. The kingdom of... uh, of Your kingdom is sometimes defined as the the range of your effective will. Like where what you say goes. That's your your dominion, your kingdom, uh, where your will is done. And Jesus, in His message, talks about the fact that the kingdom of God is breaking into this world and He talks about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, what it looks like to live uh, with, with God, po- God's power, God's presence. And we are now, instead of uh, focusing on our kingdom and our will, we pray for His kingdom to come and His will to be done. Now, a big part of that is how we relate to each other. Uh, and last week when we looked at what Jesus said, uh, He said, Thou shalt not judge. Thou shalt not judge. If you missed last week, hope you go online, uh, catch up, or uh, listen through our podcast. This week, we're going to go even deeper into how like, our relationships can get off track. Because here's what Jesus said. He said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me help take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So today we're talking about the the speck and the plank. And you know, you can kind of divide everybody up into two categories. Everybody in the world, uh, there's everybody else, and then there's you. Okay, those two circles. Quick question, which circle are you in charge of? You're in charge of the you circle, right? The you circle. Which circle are you not in charge of? Everybody else circle, yeah. Jesus' teaching here is not subtle. There are other people's faults, everybody else's, and then there are my faults. Now you would think that I would be much more aware of my faults than I am of other people's faults. You'd think I'd notice my problems first because they're my problems, right? But often I don't notice them at all. Like plank, what plank? I don't know what plank you're talking about. Like I don't see any plank. I can see clearly the your problem, Uh, but I fail to take responsibility for my life. I'm great at blaming other people. There's an old uh, bumper sticker that says, I I didn't say you were wrong, I just said I was going to blame you. You ever heard that? Because you know what my problem is? My problem is my parents. My problem is my teachers. My problem is my boss. My problem is my spouse. My problem is I don't have a spouse. My problem is where I work. Problem is, I don't have a place to work. The problem's you. I can see your tiny little problem, but I can't see my great Big problem. That's the plank. My problem is me. And I can't see that my habit of blaming others and judging others and avoiding responsibility, for that is my problem. And people go through their whole life and they never even identify, let alone like take responsibility for the fact that their real problem is them. And this is so common that you're probably thinking right now about somebody you wish were here to hear this message because they need this teaching so much. The good news is they are here. The bad news is they're you. Right? We, we learn to evade responsibility when we're tiny little sinners. 
A woman and her husband were trying to teach their little son about how good God is by asking him questions like, who made the sun? Well, God did. Who made the trees? God did. Who made Big Bird? Well, God did. Well, one morning, his mom walks into his room and it's a train wreck. There's toys everywhere, clothes on the floor, food spilled. And she asks the classic parental question, who made this mess? And he said, God did. Where did my children learn how to blame at such an early age? Not for me, that's for sure. See, true story, there's this guy that went to a traffic school and they started out and they went around and they all had to go uh, tell why they had to go to traffic school, what violation it was that, that uh, was... Not, none of them, it turned out, were responsible uh, for breaking the law. They all had justifications for speeding or for that illegal U-turn. And when it got to him, this one guy said, true story, he says, I didn't stop at the stop sign. That's why I'm here. I was entirely wrong and I got caught. And there was a moment of silence and then everybody in the room actually cheered for the one honest man in traffic school. See, the idea is that's what the church is supposed to be about. We cheer people on for honestly owning their sin. Because this is a place where nobody is perfect. So quit looking at somebody else's speck. Start looking at your plank. You're probably familiar with, with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Been around for a long time, has helped lots of people. There's another version of the serenity prayer for this message today. Is God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know it's me. (laughs) And actually, at the end of this message, you're going to have a chance to write down on a little plank what one word describes the change that God wants to make in you? Then you can, you know, like, what's on my plank? And you can start thinking about that now, uh, listening for God to whisper to you about what it is that you want to write on there and give to Him. See, when Jesus calls us to focus on the plank in our eye, He is um, calling us to take responsibility for our, our own life. There's a uh, reflecting here on a deep truth about how God made us in the beginning. Genesis says God created human beings and He created them godlike. It says God blessed them, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. God made us to be responsible. And it's a godlike thing to be responsible. People are actually happiest when they have responsibilities. It's part of what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Because Like we said, you have a kingdom. And your kingdom is your life. It's God's gift to you. And you were meant to reign, to empowered and led by God over your little kingdom. How will you spend your time today? It's your decision. How will you treat other people today? You will decide. What will your attitude be today? You get to decide. What are you going to fill your mind up with today? You decide. God made people to be responsible, and then he gave them only one rule. He said, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the first man and the first woman do. And notice what happens. God asks Adam, uh, hey, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now God asks Adam a real simple question, and Adam could have just said, yep, my bad. You know, it's like, it was, it was my fault. Uh, you gave the command to me, so, so don't blame the woman. But no, Adam throws Eve under the bus. And the man says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's not my fault. 
It was the woman. And not just the woman, it was the woman that you put here. Who made this mess? God did. And then God questions Eve, and Eve looks for somebody else to blame as quickly as Adam does. In Milton's Paradise Lost, there's a wonderful long portrayal of the first man and woman blaming each other. And he ends up with these words. He said, Thus they, in mutual accusation, spent the fruitless hours, but neither self-condemning and of their vain contest appeared no end. Question, were Adam and Eve the last married couple to spend fruitless hours in mutual accusation? (laughs) Not by a long shot. Now, this doesn't mean we don't confront each other or hold one another accountable. doesn't mean we don't speak hard words to each other. Of course we do. The plank is about a spirit of blame and condemnation. Pastor Andy Stanley says a lot of times a a single spouse will come in and complain about this distressed marriage, uh, comes in to talk to them, and the other spouse isn't there. uh, But it's always the other person. They always talk about how all of the fault is theirs and they blame their partner. And Andy will say, okay, tell you what, clearly the person who has the real problem isn't here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw a circle, and this circle represents 100% of all the the chaos, 100% of all the pain in your marriage, and I want you to draw whatever part uh, of the pie it is that represents the part for which you are responsible. And they generally will draw a slice about that big. Okay. Now, guess which slice is their responsibility? The big slice or the little slice? A little slice, yeah. This is me. This is them. Okay? Now, this is how much of responsibility belongs to me. Just this tiny little sliver here. And so Andy will say to him, like, well, okay, well, since them is not here, you know, since, since that, that person's not here, let's focus on your slice of the pie because that's really the only slice you can really work on. But here's what's interesting. He says, it never, wor- never works because people can't do it. They cannot talk about their slice. They keep going back to them, them, them. People get so addicted to complaining about the speck in the other person's eye, they can't see the plank in their own. You might call this entire thing the pie of responsibility. It's the pie of responsibility. You can use that for a marriage. You can use it for, for work, you know, where you work. You can use it for your kids, for your parents. Now, if you focus on, on this part of your life, you focus on being responsible for what you can actually be in charge of, what God has placed under your dominion, you will grow. You focus on your part, your life, you will grow. Your heart will grow. You'll pray, God, change me. God, grow me. God, guide me. And what happens is over time, your kingdom will increase. Your dominion will increase. And God wants that. If, on the other hand, you focus on the other person, you know, like here's, here's what, what, what's wrong with them, and you focus on assigning blame, could be in your marriage again, could be work, whatever, what they're not doing. When you focus on them, what will happen is your problems will grow, and your resentment will grow, your negativity will grow, and your little kingdom will get smaller and smaller and smaller. See, blame is not productive. Blame wastes energy spoils relationships, poisons families, undermines workplaces, and it violates love. But I can rationalize it so quickly. You know, I was like, oh, I was tired, and I was busy, or I was sick, or you know, it was the government's fault, or, you know, it was the other political party's fault. It's because my parents spanked me. It's 
because my parents didn't spank me enough. You know, it's like it's just so easy to fail to live with gratitude and love and excitement and enthusiasm and joy and, and then blame it on, well, it's my schedule and my job and my, this outside force. It's them instead of me. Taking responsibility for your life is part of God's plan for your growth. Doesn't mean you deny you may have been a victim of horrible abuse or a betrayal or a disease which you didn't ask for and can't control. What it actually is, is joining my little kingdom, such as it is, with God's great big kingdom and his plan to change everything. There's a brilliant thinker at Stanford, a guy named Rene Girard, who was actually converted to Christianity as an adult by reading about the theme of blame in literature and history and how toxic and destructive it is, and then reading about it in the Bible and how God turned things around. Uh, I was first told about him by a pastor named John Ortberg, who's kind of one of my mentors from afar. And I just want to be real clear on this. Uh, if this sermon is at, all, is at all helpful, I wanted you to know I got this from John. If it's not, if it's a flop, I want you to know I got this from John. Okay, so he, here's the idea. All people, all societies, you know, all cultures have a custom of scapegoating. They find a, a scapegoat. A scapegoating is just a practice where somebody or a group of people, they find somebody to pin all the blame on. Uh, even if it's not their fault, they're the scapegoat. And Gerard said it's almost like a safety valve and all the blame for resentment and rivalry and anger and so on gets put on them so that we don't have to own it. So a kid might, in school might get picked on because they look different or act different or you know, they're kind of clumsy or they might be considered unattractive. And nobody votes on this, but everybody somehow knows in this class like who is the scapegoat. There's a whole movement of family systems theory that was developed a couple decades ago that said families often have scapegoats. There's often like a black sheep or, or somebody in the family who all the problems get blamed on. So mom and dad don't have to look at themselves. And then Gerard said, nations have scapegoats. For Hitler, above all, it was the Jews. For Stalin, it was the dissidents. In Rwanda, it was the Tutsi. Scapegoating people means dehumanizing them. Now, in the Bible, way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the priest would actually have a goat chosen by Lot, and it was called the scapegoat. And he would put his hands on it and confess the sins of Israel over it. And then they would release it into the wilderness just as a picture of the sins of Israel being removed and forgiven by God. It was just a picture, but that's actually where the name scapegoat comes from. And Gerard said that in ancient cultures outside of Israel, sacrifices very often involved human beings. Human victims who were sacrificed to placate or appease the gods. There were human scapegoats, which meant the problems of society or the tribe were pinned on them. And the idea was that in sacrificing them, that would heal the community from chaos nobody wanted to own. We see this dynamic at work in the Bible. The story of Cain and Abel. Cain, you know, unlike his brother Abel, was unable to offer God a proper sacrifice. He fails to do that. And he is upset and angry, but instead of taking responsibility and owning it and making things right, he scapegoats his brother and gets rid of him. He says, you know, if I just get rid of Abel, then it'll be okay. Now, Gerard noticed that something in the Bible happened that was unprecedented. Stories of blame, of scapegoating, would be told, but the stories were actually sympathetic to the victim, to the one that gets scapegoated. God cared about the victim. 
God condemns the act of people and families and nations scapegoating other people. He says the blood of Abel cried out to him from the ground. Joseph's brothers scapegoat Joseph and they get rid of him. They think, well, if we just get rid of him, then we'll be okay. But God cares about Joseph. In other words, in the Bible, the ancient universal practice of scapegoating begins to be undermined, begins to collapse. And all this comes to a climax in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the holy, innocent one. He is utterly blameless, the sinless one. All the powers that be, the religious leaders, they decide Jesus is their problem, and they make Jesus the scapegoat. And the one man who could have saved him, Pontius Pilate, he publicly washes his hands. Like, don't blame me. I'm innocent of this blood. Because that's the way we do things. Except, of course, nobody's innocent except Jesus. And on the cross, he lays bare the mechanism, the, the evil, the violence, the injustice, the wickedness of scapegoating. We're told in the New Testament, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. In Christ's great love, he absorbs all the sin, all the hatred, all the wickedness, all the violence of the world upon himself on the cross. He pays the price, makes atonement. And in his resurrection, he says, now the way of blaming and stigmatizing and condemning and rejecting is over. Jesus has become, against all odds, the great scapegoat, the ultimate scapegoat, the final scapegoat, the one who takes our sins on himself so that we can be forgiven. So this is how we practice living in the kingdom of God this week. This week, I want to invite you just to say, I am going to focus on the plank in my eye, not the speck in somebody else's eye. That plank, a spirit of condemnation, could be based on, on somebody's ethnicity, their, their morality, their behavior which drives you crazy, their religious beliefs, their political ideology. could even be generational. This stuff divides churches all the time. Maybe you're older, which means you come to church and you see somebody younger and you think, why do they have to wear ripped jeans and t-shirts? And why do they have to pierce their bodies? And why do they have to tattoo their skins? And why do they want their music so loud? And just under the surface is, why can't they be more like me? And you end up missing the wonderful spirit of adventure in them and compassion and idealism or the desire to make a difference. Maybe you're younger, and what that means is you come to church and you see somebody older and you think, well, why do they have to be so formal and so picky and so wrinkly and so technologically incompetent, you know? And just under the surface is, why can't they be more like me? And maybe you're not sure whether you're younger or older. And what that means is you're older. Okay? So, this week, just stop trying to straighten other people out. I know a guy that says, if you want to straighten other people out, work at a funeral home. Because that's the only place where when you straighten somebody out, they stay straightened. Right? Live people tend to resist straightening. This week, give up the practice of straightening out. This week, practice taking responsibility for your own life, your little slice of the pie. 
Instead of automatically getting defensive or trying to justify or excuse, this week take a step back. Ask God to help you and actually own the fact, yeah, those are my words. Those are my actions. Those are my habits. Those are my patterns. Those are my attitudes. It's me. This week, ask God to help you identify what the plank is that needs to be removed. Because Jesus is right. The problem isn't just that we have a plank in our eye, it's that we don't even notice the plank. So we need some outside help to become aware of what it is that needs changing. The old language for this is conviction of sin that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift nobody wants, but it's a gift of the Spirit. I'll kind of give you a picture of this. There's, there was a guy uh, named Charles Steinmetz. He was an electrical engineer in the early 20th century. Just an absolute genius. And there was a story in Life magazine that Henry Ford once called Steinmetz to consult about problems with a huge electrical generator. It wasn't working. Nobody could figure out what was wrong. And Steinmetz comes to the plant, observes it for two days straight, climbs a ladder to make an X mark with a piece of chalk on the side. And he told the engineers to remove a plate at that chalk mark and replace 16 windings from the field coil. They did what he said, and lo and behold, it worked. And Henry Ford was thrilled until he got a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000, which was a ridiculous amount of money back then. So he asked for an itemized bill, and Steinmetz then resent the bill with only two items. First, making a chalk mark on generator, $1. Second, knowing where to make the mark, $9,999. And Ford paid the bill. See, every one of us has a plank. Maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's a habit, you know, maybe it's a relationship. But because of that, my life is not working right. My character is out of whack, and I don't even know why. And that's the human condition. The psalmist says, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. See, that's the plank I don't notice. So, if we invite Him, the Holy Spirit will come and make an X so that we know where the problem is and can invite God to change us. But the problem is most of us would prefer to go make a big X on other people's lives. You know, I'd, I'd put an X on you. Here's where you need to change. Here's what you need to do different. Would you like to know what your problem is? <laughs> can I straighten you out? This week, you ask God to know where to put the X over your heart and in your life. Because there's something that God wants to change in me and in you. This is maybe the greatest relational prayer that you can pray. Lord, change me. Change me. Not change her, not change him. Change it. So Lord, change me. Change my attitude. Change my, my negative thinking. Change my sarcasm with my spouse. Change the way I nag at my children. Change my negative attitude. Change my envy that I can't seem to get over. Change the way I rush through every day without pausing to be grateful. Change my defensive spirit. Change my stubborn streak. Just let me know where the X goes. And some kind, sometimes God will do that directly through His Holy Spirit. And you'll just have this impression, this whisper, like, this is the area. And sometimes those areas are so well hidden, they're like blind spots, and you're just going to need a trusted friend or a mentor to 
help walk through that with you and discern that. And the Holy Spirit will work through them to help you see that area. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you a few moments to ask God to help you mark whatever it is on your plank that God wants you to mark. If you've got a pen or a pencil or a marker, you can write a word there now or you can write it when you get home. But just take a few moments. Jen's going to play quietly in the background. And just ask God to help you go after that plank with His help.